Good morning. The reading today is from 1 Samuel chapter 1 and I'm reading from verse 1 through to 28. There was a certain man from Remethaim, a Zephite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerome, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zaph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, He would give portions of the meat to his wife Benina and to her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, Her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor shall ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant as a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the Lord of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and fulfil his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, 
After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord and will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an epath of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he shall be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Thanks, John, and thank you, everyone, for listening. I told you that I was excited to bring you uh, this one Samuel series. I have another reason to be excited for it, as came about around Christmas time. My wife got me one of those Ancestry.com DNA tests, and I did it. And guess what? Turns out I'm 30% Jewish. Didn't know that. So I'm just so happy to bring you the scriptures, my people today. You know, kind of cool. Well, 30% my people anyway. The rest of me still bits up, so who knows what else is in there. But enough about me, let's talk about you. Let's say at the end of this hot, hot day, the sun's starting to come down and maybe you've been sitting inside in the air for a while and you think time for a bit of fresh air and uh, exercise. And so the sun's coming down this afternoon, the temperature's coming down as well and you take yourself off for a walk just by yourself. You ever walk through your neighbourhood, uh, maybe you stroll down a pathway, maybe through a track through some of the beautiful wood, uh, bush that's around and stuff like that. Anyway, as you're walking, you notice that uh, the sky is kind of changing colour. It's getting darker, but it's changing colour. It feels a little bit different. There's no one else around, it's just you. And you hear a strange noise like something you haven't heard before. And then you see a sight like you haven't seen before. Coming over your head, believe it or not, it's a flying saucer. And this flying saucer goes over your head, makes all the flying saucer sort of noises and touches down in front of you. And this mystical kind of smoke comes up from it. And the landing ramp, the walkway comes down from it. And you, you're panicked at this stage. And then out of the smoke, as the ramp has come down, walk down the little green men. The Martians are here. And they come up to you and they say what you know they're going to say. Take us to your leader. Wait, where are you taking them? Where are you going to go? As the Martians descend in front of you and say that Martian line, take us to your leader, where will you choose to go? Is your life group leader about to encounter some Martians? Is maybe the local police station about to encounter some Martians? You're like, whoa, oh, well, there's this new guy in America. He's just been elected. He's fairly new. But, well, I guess we're going to the state. You're going to go meet Joe Biden? 
Are you heading to Canberra? Where are you going? Do you say to them, I am a follower of Jesus. Come kneel with me. Pray to the Jewish Messiah. Couldn't help it. Had to work one in there. Are you going to go and pray? What are you going to do when they say, take us to your leader? When we think about leadership often, we can get quite huge concepts from time to time. I don't know what came to mind for you. I don't even know yet what comes to mind for me if you're thinking, well, well, let's, let's go home and sit with my family. I don't know what you're thinking of, but often when we think about concepts of leadership, we think of big office and stuff like that. And we also think of big expectation, because it's not always just who is the leader, it's what do you expect them to do? What are they responsible for and what am I responsible for? And so sometimes these big pictures come with big expectations. You think, uh, it's the president, leader of the free world, as POTUS likes to uh, refer to himself as. Uh, and so you might think of the newly elected president who has said things like uh, he wants to unite a country, which is a great thing, but it's a big expectation to put upon oneself. How will you influence the thoughts and hearts and behavior of so many people? So divided. that's a huge expectation on any one person. You may disagree with me, but a year ago, I thought Australia put a, well, some members of Australia put a crazy expectation on our Prime Minister. There were those terrible bushfires. And everyone was outraged that Scott Morrison was on his annual leave, like he was going to hold every hose pipe. Didn't matter whether or not he'd uh, set up departments and had people in chains of leadership and firemen who would deal with the fires. It was like, where's the Prime Minister? How can he possibly be on holidays? He should be here. Because sometimes we think leader and hero and they get confused. And leader and servant and this idea of servant, is my servant going to be more like a butler or more like a coach? Because they're both kinds of servants, but they act in different ways. We get really confused about these sorts of things and our expectations can be really big. Yeah, we're a people who are waiting for a, a, another kind of leader at our church, a senior minister. And I wonder what your expectations of that guy will be. What if he's a guy who never answers his phone? What if he's a guy who refuses to share his personal number with you? What if he's a guy who doesn't answer emails and refuses to share his email address with you? What if he's a guy who sometimes has different priorities to you and you could be sick and in trouble and he says, no, I'm not coming. And you can't, well, he doesn't even say it because you can't find him. He's not coming, but he's praying. What if sometimes he intentionally, after doing some ministry, retreats with his team and says, we're not available right now. We need some time of rest. I can see you're in crisis. We need a different space. How would you feel about him? Probably similar to how you would have felt about Rabbi Jesus back in the day because that was his methodology from time to time. Now, expectations, sometimes we think about these people, they're going to be 24-7. Let me say here, as a clergy member, any minister who thinks his job is 24-7 has forgotten the space of God and forgotten the space of Christians and is leading an ungodly ministry life. That's not what God's called any of us to do. But we have these expectations, right? And along with the expectations that I think we know sometimes we have that reluctance. 
So who's leading the group? Oh, we all kind of lead the group. We share it. No one wants to step forward and be the leader because we all know what happens to leaders. People look at them. People have expectations of them. You're on 24-7, right? No, I'm not on 24-7. And so that can be really difficult. And so there's an inbuilt reluctance in us because with leadership comes that level of responsibility. And it can be difficult and tricky. How does it work? This is exactly the kind of mindset that's helpful as you step into 1 Samuel. Because 1 Samuel is a book found in the context of the end of the period of the Judges. Now, just before uh, 1 Samuel in the Bible, you find Ruth, which is set in the period of the Judges. And 1 Samuel is the next evolution for the people of Israel. And as Judges ends, here is a comment on the leadership situation in Israel. Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. So just in the quiet of your mind, if I said, did Israel have a leader? Some people would respond, oh, there's a leadership vacuum. Is there? Maybe, maybe not. I'll let you wrestle with that. But what's beautiful about the way 1 Samuel opens is going from this comment of, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit, 1 Samuel chapter 1 verse 1 opens with, like the, uh, like the, like the camera lens zooming in from a broad look at Israel where everyone did as seemed best to them, now we're going to zoom in and look at one of those everyones, a certain one. A certain man from Ramathan, I can't really say that, but you get the point. A man called Elkanah. There's an opportunity to look at this particular guy and his family and go, well, what did they do in the time when Israel had no king? How did they fare? In fact, the camera sort of zooms in even more because the story's not really about Elkanah. It focuses on his wife, Hannah. You heard the story of Hannah. Hannah is married to Elkanah, who is also married to Penina. It kind of drops out of our translation a little bit, but it would seem that Hannah is the first wife. And Hannah has no children. Perhaps realizing no children were going to be born to them, Elkanah, who it says loves his wife, may have picked up a newer, younger model in Penina, the second wife. Just imagine the heartache which is described here for this Hannah, who has been unable to just have the joy of a child, but also the, the, the security of the future, because this is how children work. Like, to have sons is a big deal. Well, they don't have sons. Uh, it's like there's no superannuation plan, no retirement plan. She can't bring what she might feel responsible for to the family, and now her husband has had to bring in another wife in, Penina, and Penina is bearing children. And isn't Penina just a sweetheart about it? She sees Hannah as a rival, and she taunts her in order to irritate her. Gosh, you've got to feel for Hannah's heart just a little, surely. This is a hard, hard life that she's living. It, 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 it's got some torment in it, and it's tough. Now, you know that things end up with her bearing Samuel as a child, but this is more than a story about 
uh, a barren woman having a child. This is much, much more. This is about a woman living her life out and doing what seems best to her under God. Brothers and sisters, if I say nothing else to you this morning, here is my message. The disciples' journey begins by following one in order to lead one in the sight of one. Let me say that for you again. The disciples' journey begins by following one in order to lead one in the sight of one. This is because, to quote Hannah from, from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, the disciples' heart rejoices in the Lord. Now let me try and explain my statement a little bit as we look at Hannah's life. Step one. If the disciples' journey begins by following one, then what's step one? First, be a follower. A line you don't hear a whole bunch of today. Look at Hannah's hardship and the place of God in verse 6. Verse 6, because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. We can all agree that Hannah's life is, has hardship, can we not? Having this sweetheart Penina along the way just taunting you and that sadness that uh, I'm, sure many, I'm sure there are a number listening to this talk now have felt of struggle with infertility and things like that, but it, it just goes further for poor Hannah. Why can't Hannah have children? You don't need to give me a medical condition because it's in the text. Hannah can't have children said twice, verse 5 and verse 6, because the Lord had closed her womb. We like it when God's working for us. We wrestle when God struggles to get with the program. Let me come back to that. First, let's see how Hannah responds in verse 11. How does Hannah, the woman taunted by her rival, whose womb is closed by the Lord, how does she respond to the Lord? Verse 11. And Hannah made a vow, a very significant promise, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. There are two words and one concept that we need to visit at this point. First first words are Lord Almighty. When Hannah approaches God... She approaches him as the Lord Almighty. She adopts this posture where in her prayer, it's not for a moment something like meeting with an equal or meeting with a a negotiation partner or even saying, if you're really God, you should be able to or when you act that way, I don't believe. No, she acknowledges God as the Lord Almighty. And in saying Lord Almighty, she's saying, you are above all things and able to do all things. Now, here's an important thing for us to remember. Sometimes we like the concept of a God who is powerful when things are going great. It has been preached from platforms much bigger than this by preachers far more skilled than me 
Things like this. Follow God and your big break is just around the corner. Maybe. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes you're like Hannah and the Lord has closed your womb. There's a strange kind of um, defense line that we as Christians sometimes run for God and he doesn't want us. Where we speak of God's presence, we speak of his power, we speak of his providence in good times and when something goes sadly for someone like a closed womb, when we say, God, you just go backstage for a while and uh, we'll talk about praying, but we'll act like you had nothing to do with it. Not in the book of Samuel. Twice, the Lord closed Hannah's womb. And Hannah said, yes, you are the Lord Almighty to be followed. How do I follow you, Lord? Next word for us to tune into, servants. Hannah prayed, verse 11, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery. Now, sometimes when prayers like these are uttered, or any kinds of prayers are uttered, we might meet God like we're equals somehow. Well, Hannah's obliterated that already. You're the Lord Almighty, and I'm the servant. I'm blessed just to be in your presence. Sometimes we meet God like we're meeting someone at the negotiating table. And because there's if language here, you might even think Hannah's trying to do a deal. Some of you know I used to sell cars once upon a time, and you know, often you close a sale with things like, if I can get you the price that you've asked for, can we have your business today? This is a negotiation, and they say, hopefully they say yes, then I walk back to my sales manager's office and I walk back out, great news, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, we've secured that price for you, put out my hand, negotiation closed. This is not a negotiation. This is not God. If you'll be good enough to give me a kid, I'll be really, really good and make sure that, you know, he says his prayers at night and he's a nice child. It's not what's happening here. Nor is this threatening prayer. Sometimes people pray threatening prayers to God. Like, God, if you're really God or if you can do this or I can't believe in a God who would not obey my will and glorify me. That's not Hannah's prayer. Hannah's prayer is, your God, your Almighty, I know you closed my womb. I know that you're in charge of my womb. And I'm your servant. This is not a negotiation. You are not my genie in the bottle. We are not peers. I come before you. And the final thing that I want to point out from verse 11, Almighty, servant, and this concept of the Nazarite vow. It comes up in Numbers 6, and it's what Hannah is referring to here, this idea of not cutting your hair and not drinking strong drink and being dedicated to the Lord. But here's the thing. The Nazarite vow as described in Numbers 6 is for a period. It's like a diet in a sense. You know, you go on a diet and then you head back to Macca's. This is Hannah saying what all the diet people tell us to do. Don't go on a diet, form a lifestyle habit, whatever. Whatever. Yeah, you feel me. Hannah says, 
for all his days he's going to be dedicated to the Lord. If you entrust this child to me, I will surrender him unto you. Now, we probably all sit here at different levels of maternal, paternal feels. But I've got to tell you, you don't need to be super maternal to work out that uh, if you've been struggling to have a child, God grants you one and your plan is to wean that child and then return that child to the Lord. <sighs> Tough. Hannah is not simply looking for her circumstances to get better. She's looking to be a follower of God. For Hannah, the lesson we learn is to have God at the center. Now, here's the hard bit about following God, and I suspect you know it. Following God, easy. When Jesus comes to you and says, hey, trust in me, I'll die that death you deserve, and then you get to come have eternal life with me in heaven forever, and it's great. You go, that's a God I can follow. It gets a little bit trickier in circumstances like this when you commit to follow the God who is sovereign, who is Lord, we are servant, and sometimes he will lead you to places you don't want to go, lead you into seasons you don't want to visit, lead you into times that you might not come out of in this life. But this is what Hannah's demonstrating for us, to be able to, lead, to, be able to follow the God who says, I am responsible, I am sovereign, I am in control in all of your seasons, even the ones that make you want to punch the sky and say, if only there was a God. He says, there is a God, it's me, I'm here, I see it, I've got a plan. Can you follow me, even where you don't want to go? Hannah can. The first step is follow. Now, just before the adventurous among you duck off to the tattoo parlor this afternoon and get only God will judge me tattooed across your back and buy a Harley Davidson. He's like, right, I'm committed to this idea. I'm going to follow God. I don't need anyone to lead me now. Look what it does for Hannah. Following God does not make her unresponsive to earthly leadership, despite the fact that the leadership around her is earthly and suboptimal. She has a husband, Elkanah. Elkanah seems to be a good bloke doing the best he can. Takes his family up to worship, has another wife, loves his first wife. He has not forgotten Hannah. The text says he loves her. Hannah is responsive in verse 8 when her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you weep? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Now, we could get cynical at this point and go, what a buffet, he doesn't get it. Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons, love? Not quite what's going on here. I think this is a man saying, Hannah, you are safe in my presence. I will keep you. And Hannah, what happens, verse 9, she actually does go and eat with them. She is somewhat brightened up. The trouble is Elkanah has the same problem every spouse on earth has and will always have. He's not God and he can't bring full wholeness to Hannah, though he is able to comfort her somewhat because she's responsive to his leadership. She does listen. Hannah lives in a time where Eli is the priest and Eli's sons, who we'll hear about more in later chapters, are wicked and evil and Eli just seems to be a little bit apathetic and not great at his role. Nominators, we don't want Eli. He's not a Christian to start with, but we don't want Eli. Yet when Eli speaks to Hannah 
after she is praying, even after misunderstanding and thinking that she's drunk, she's responsive to his leadership. When he mistakenly thinks she's drunk, she doesn't respond rudely, but she's able to answer. When Eli says, go in peace, she's able to receive his blessing, and she even says, may your servant find favor with you, strong language. And then when she gets this precious son, Samuel, she's able to surrender him to intern or apprentice under Eli, the appointed priest of the day. Being a follower of God has done nothing to harm Hannah as being a follower of the people in the various leadership roles in her life. And it's done nothing to make her a doormat either because she's got this rival, Penina, sweetheart that she is. When Penina would taunt Hannah, how many times do we read that Hannah retaliated? None. When Hannah would pray, did she ever pray, and Lord, get rid of that Penina woman, she's such a... No. Hannah was able to do her issue and not worry about this unhelpful lady. Her following of God only enhanced her capacity to be a faithful follower of the people God had put around her and to be a smart follower too. Of all the things, of all the subpoints I have this morning, this is the one that touches my heart the most because I live in a world today where I'm glad the language of leadership has been supercharged over the last 20 years, but maybe to a fault. I hear language like people saying to their children, be a leader, not a follower. Hmm, that's a half-truth. I hear people being called sheeple, being likened to sheep. That Jesus seems very pleased, God seems very pleased to call his people sheep. I hear parents of my generation talk about raising their children to be independent leaders. If that is you, hear my appeal to reassess your priority. Well, Adam and Eve seem to do a great job raising Cain to be an independent leader. Codependent follower is not a great thing. Independent leader is just as sinful, but now with pride attached. Look for something different. Look for something that we might learn in the words of 1 Samuel. First, be a follower. Step two, if the disciple's journey begins by following one to lead one in the sight of one, then step two is let's lead one. Who's the one? yourself. Lead yourself. I return you to Judges 21-25. Israel had no king in those days. So everyone had to make decisions about what's best to do. Israel in those days also had a suboptimal priesthood. The word of God, visions from God were not very common in those times. Maybe because no one was really listening. No one was following. And we meet this woman, Hannah, who has a helpful husband. He tries to help, but he can't make a whole. Humans can't do that for you. She has a suboptimal priest. In verse 9, you see something quite, quite beautiful in the text about Hannah. Let me read verse 9 to you. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in... Sorry, once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Everybody says, stood up. Amazing. Now, Eli the priest was sitting, everybody say, sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. 
Hebrew is a very physically expressive language, and there's a hint here of what's going on. Whilst Hannah stood up, Eli is sitting. Whilst this woman who leads one takes a step forward and moves herself into the presence of God to pray, the interceder, the priest, is sitting. While she is active, he is apathetic. Hannah moves forward. She doesn't wait for her husband to somehow become God to her and fill her completely. She doesn't wait for the priesthood to drag her before the Lord and say, let's pray about it. She doesn't wait for Penina to stop being such a sweetheart about things. Hannah stands up and takes herself before the Lord. Hannah, who is a follower of God, says, what's my next step? and leads herself and takes herself forward. This is the ancient example of the more recent wisdom of if you want to change the world, start by cleaning your room. This is a woman who takes responsibility for her journey before God. She stands up. There's not much more to say on this except... As people under God, we must be people ready to take responsibility for our spiritual development, for our actions, for our ways, for the ways we participate in society. No more blaming others. No more, there ought to be a law. Let's do more self-regulation. No more, what are they doing for me? No more, everybody else should. No more, I'll wait and see who else is going. Step forward. Lead yourself into a good space if it's a space to be. No more depending on the recent phenomenon of cancel culture and censorship. If you find it distasteful, wrong, you can argue it. You can step back from it. You can make a decision for yourself. You don't need someone to cancel it or censor it for you. Ask, what do I need to take responsibility for for myself? You know, every church I've ever attended in my life, and there's been a few, I've heard someone say, do you know I was away from church for six to eight weeks and nobody contacted me? Now, that's a sad reality. There's something to speak to on that. But my response has often been, you knew you were away from church for six to eight weeks. What did you do about you? Why weren't you precious enough to you to get yourself before your Lord and with his people? You had more data about this than anybody. Follow one so you can lead one. As a follower of God, we ask ourselves, what is the next best thing that I must lead myself into? We take responsibility, like Hannah, who stood. And finally, we lead in the sight of one. Who sees Hannah? Well, she's certainly seen by Penina, isn't she? Penina sees her as a rival. Nah, 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 nah. I've got children. Look at you. I'm providing for the future. Look at you. A real sweetheart, this Penina. And if Hannah allowed herself to be assessed by the eyes of Penina, her rival, she might start to tell herself, I'm a loser. 
she might start to strategize like some of the previous women of the Bible have when they have been unable to have children. But Penina's vision does not direct Hannah's affairs. Who else is she seen by? She's seen by her husband, Elkanah, and I think he sees her well. He loves his wife. He looks after his wife. He tries to encourage his wife, but he can't make his wife whole. He suffers the thing that every spouse will always suffer from. You can't be God for your spouse. And so she doesn't get down on her husband. She goes to her God. The way her husband sees her provides a level of comfort, but it doesn't direct who she is or what she does. Who else is she seen by? She's seen by Eli, the priest, who misunderstood and thinks she's a drunk woman when she's pouring out her heart to the Lord. I'll pause for a moment and say, I don't know if there are many things more painful in leadership than to be misunderstood and have a mixed motive assigned to you. I use the popular phrase right now, if you know, you know. If you've ever been in that sort of circumstance, you know just how painful and sad it can be to be accused of things that you have no intention of being about. Hannah was misunderstood by Eli. But that doesn't change her way. What affects the way Hannah follows and leads herself and, by virtue of Samuel, will lead a nation? Hear her prayer in verse 11. Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, Hannah's great desire is that God would look at her. It's not that God doesn't look at her, but it's God, confirm for me that you are watching. For all my decisions, all my fellowship, all my leadership, I want to be assessed by you. Your eyes are the eyes that matter. Brothers and sisters, I'm out of time, so let me leave you with these comments. As we desire that God would bring a leader to us, do you know that it's going to be tricky? as we get to know one another. My prayer is that the leader who would lead us into the future, though we will all have many views and opinions, will lead with one set of eyes that really matter to him. An audience of one. That he will lead knowing that the praises of God are the only praises worth getting and the judgment of God is the only real judgment worth getting. So I pray that he, like Hannah, will also be a follower will lead himself and will lead in the presence of the Lord. Those are the only eyes that I pray he really cares about. How do you do this? You adopt the heart that Hannah has. Her heart rejoices in the Lord. To follow him, to take responsibility for her own life under him. The disciple's journey begins by following one, to lead one, in the sight of one because the disciple's heart rejoices in the Lord. Let me pray. A gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the things that you have to teach us. And we do pray, Lord, that uh, as we encounter different people encountering you in this book, that you will continue to teach us what it is to be a follower, what it is to be a leader, what it is to be a disciple under you. And so, Father God, I pray for us all this morning that some of the things that are said to us to shame us about being followers, that they might be stripped away, that instead we might delight in following you 
that we might be willing to take responsibility for leading ourselves and not look to blame others or wait for a, a situation or wait for a legislation. And Lord God, in our fellowship and our leadership, that we might delight to do this in your presence, that we might be assessed by you and that we might please you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.